I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, news breaking over the weekend of President Xi now getting very concerned about the possibility of a summit in Florida. Beijing is worried that the U.S.-China deal is in jeopardy after seeing what happened at the Trump-Kim summit in Hanoi. What will happen to the planned U.S.-China meeting at Mar-a-Lago? Plus, the trade deficit soared to a 10-year high. Is that good or bad for trade? And the USMCA is about to go out for congressional approval. Will it go through? And last but not least, India has become the president's latest trade target. U.S. President Donald Trump has announced plans to withdraw the tariff concessions available to India under the Generalized System of Preferences, or GSP. You'll hear about all of that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it's not really same old, same old when it comes to China-U.S. trade deal because now it's not just the president who might walk. It might be Xi Jinping who might walk, right? Yes. The Chinese made a move and hinted that he didn't want to uh, show up unless everything had been settled in advance. Sounds like he was watching the Hanoi summit right? and didn't want uh, a situation where he was left holding the bag and the president walked out because the deal wasn't good enough. Especially if the bag says Mar-a-Lago on it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you don't want to be whole. <laughs> it's a bad place to be sitting in the lobby waiting for your Uber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After, after the deal falls apart. Right. That's and not you, a good look for any leader, let alone Xi Jinping. He probably doesn't ca- come with his own car. You're he right. Probably, probably needs an Uber. But. So, so, I mean, is that the image? Would, would it it'd be Xi and the president sitting down at Mar-a-Lago and the president could actually get up and walk and abandon the talks? Well, and the optics for China and for Xi Jinping, their, their fearless leader, would be not good. Well, yeah, I mean, but think about the logistics. And beyond of, not good. The, the thing about the logistics of it, Trump lives there. How can he leave? Can't leave. I mean, I Doesn't guess need to leave. I guess he can go to the the clubhouse or something, or yeah. you know, do a round. Of, it's, a, of it's a little hard to <laughs> to imagine the entire he goes Chinese. To, but all he's got to do is say, "Hey, you know, we're done," and go give a a little news conference and say, or never gives a little news conference. He's he's widely available to talk for for many many hours. I'm assuming, but you know. He, he could very well do the same thing he did, uh, you know, as part of his art of the deal with the uh, North Koreans. You know, there's an interesting twist to the, that, though, and I don't think we talked about this before. After the Hanoi summit failed, there was a lot of speculation about what did that mean for China? Right. And one school of thought was it meant that Trump demonstrated he can walk away and the Chinese, therefore, should pay attention and, you know, pony up some better offers because otherwise he's going to walk away. Uh, the other school of thought said, no, the opposite, that having not made that deal, it makes it all the more important that he make the next one. He needs a win. He needs a win, and Korea is not a win, so he needs a China win. And the Chinese better take the better the lesson for the Chinese on that is he should hold fast because he's going to fold and, and make the deal. And now the answer was none of the above. The Chinese came back with their own interpretation, which is we don't want to be in a situation where he walks out on us and we look bad. Yeah, Scott, Which what, we do you, have what, do you, what do you think about all this? Well, there's still time to patch all this together. I mean, the, 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 all, all the, the drama has not played out here. 
In addition, there's a moving part today that, that is probably worth mentioning, which is Ambassador Lighthizer is testifying before the Senate Finance Committee. Right. Today is Tuesday. And I listened to, to that. We're taping this Tuesday morning. Uh, he's up on the hill as we speak. No. it's Well, they all went to lunch. They don't do all-day hearings anymore. Grassley- Unless it's Michael Cohen's well, all-day uh, hearing. This is true. Grassley cra- gaveled them to, to a close about 12.10. Charles Grassley, the chairman of the committee. Yes. And the very issue that Scott started to talk about came up because he was Ambassador Lighthizer was pressed by Lighthizer was pressed by several senators on when is this going to end? Right. And how far along are you? When is U.S. And, China going to end? Yes. Yes. Well, there were a lot of other things they wanted to know when they were going to end too. Yeah. But they mostly wanted to know when the tariffs were going to come off. Right. But when the deal was going to be done, and several of them pressed him for details about what actually the deal was. Uh, And he offered to brief them in private, but did not want to do that in public, which makes perfect sense. What he did say was that we're getting to the end game. We are well down the road. We're making progress. And I think in the next few weeks, I think that was about as specific as he could get, uh, we should be able to either have something uh, that's good or something that is not good enough and the president will reject it. But Scott Miller, isn't that same old, same old Lighthizer saying, you know, we're getting closer, we're getting closer? Uh, well, a few, look, a few weeks. Is- he, a few weeks is, is a pretty definite period of time. That's within the window of uh, President Xi's trip to Europe that he could tack on the visit to Mar-a-Lago. So that all fits in the timetable. And we're either getting closer or we're not. So we'll find that out. Uh, and uh, it looks to me like uh, the ambas- Ambassador Lighthizer, at least, has picked up a, f- a fair amount of support in both House and Senate to remain tough on this, to to keep keep pushing and make sure American interests are are, are, de- are delivered against. But Lighthizer has been the guy who's been skeptical versus um, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow, who on Sunday said that he's bullish on the prospects of a U.S.-China trade deal being finalized by April. Well, he's Mr. Happy. He's always bullish. He's also on the everything. guy. He doesn't have to cut the deal. He, he, it, it's, it's, Some it's, people it, think he's it, just trying to juice up the market. Well, it's really. It's Lighthizer. Why would anybody think that? Uh, well, you know, your guess is as good as mine. It's Bob Lighthizer's <laughs> job to actually get the deal done. So in this case, not to di- not to discount anything that uh, Mr. Kudlow says, Ambassador Lighthizer seems to be the guy who would have the, the closest, uh, the best estimate of, of what this is going to shape up to. He, he did emphasize today that uh, they are not in agreement on the enforcement mechanisms. Yes. And the enforcement details. And he emphasized that what the United States wants is a way in which they can unilaterally act if they decide that the Chinese have not complied. And it was pretty clear that the Chinese have uh, have not yet agreed to that. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like it's a closed issue in the sense that we've folded either. It's an open area of disagreement, but a really big one. Yeah, back in the day, um, Larry Kudlow did a mean Gordon Gecko impression. No, really? Yeah. Well, I'm talking Wall Street here. You know, the movie Wall Street. Yes. The yes. great, great movie Wall Street. With Greed is good. Michael du- Green is good. I mean, he really embodied the Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko character with the swept back hair and the well, cigarette and the He was a star on CNBC the, in the early days. That's so, right. Yeah, that's he right. looks a little bit like a gecko. He's yeah. not green, but he's got the- But not Gordon Gecko. <laughs> not Gordon Gecko, no. <laughs> that would be Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas had a great look going in that movie. Yes. I mean, we all agree on that, no right? No question about yes. that. Yeah. Okay. Excellent movie. All right. But we digress. Why is Congress getting anxious? Does it have anything to do- with the overall trade deficit, the fact that the U.S. trade deficit, specifically with China, has grown. I mean, President Trump, during his first two years in office, um, the trade deficit in goods with China set a new record. The senators that made the most forceful points said, the uncertainty is killing my constituents. 
And one senator, I think it was Senator Hassan from New Hampshire, but I'm not sure, went uh, went into some detail about being approached by constituents who are have to make a decision about a major investment, like a $50 million investment. Uh, and they can't do that without knowing how some of these things are going to turn out. Okay. And she Makes talked about the cost of it. And then there Investors were senators. like certainty. There were senators from farm states. Senator Daines from Montana. Sure. Uh, went into great detail about what the, the how the farmers and ranchers in Montana are suffering from yeah, the tariffs. Yeah, sure. They want to see a deal done to see the tariffs lifted. That's yeah. the same concern most most uh, members of Congress have raised about USMCA. Let's settle the, the steel and aluminum tariffs first because it was the tariffs applied by Canada and Mexico on farm products that hurt so badly. So let's get the, you know, let's get back to square one before we move forward. So that's part of it. I don't think it, the Congress is particularly concerned about the trade deficit, nor should they be. Okay, okay so explain that. Why, why shouldn't they be? Well, I mean, the tra- let, let's just put this in perspective. The trade deficit soared to a ten-year high in 2018. You know, despite having a strong economy, um, for 2018 as a whole, the deficit grew to 621 billion, the highest since 2008, the Commerce Department reported. And even when the service sector is excluded, the gap was even greater. Um, it rises to you know 891.3 billion. So Which I think it's a record for goods. Yeah. Well, yes. Now, uh, but let's step back from it. First of all, we often give the president credit as an excellent persuader and being able to communicate issues in very succinct manner. In the case of the trade deficit- We being the general we, not we specifically being the trade guy. He's sh- a good persuasion. On this podcast, yes. okay. we've, we've credited his persuasion skills. Yeah. Okay. But he's chosen the long, wrong scoreboard when it comes to the trade deficit. Uh, but the trade deficit is actually, well, when you really get down to it and look at what's happening to our economy, it is the fact that there's a huge demand for capital that cannot be satisfied by domestic savings. And that's the net of it. The the national accounts have a current account and a capital account. What we really have is a capital account surplus because the American economy growing at 3% attracts more capital than our current domestic savings can provide. That capital comes from foreigners and is offset by the purchase of foreign goods and services, which we call the current account. Now, the current account and capital account are always in balance. And it, but what we have in this case, given the fast growth of the U.S. economy, is we have a we have an investment surplus, not a trade deficit. All right, it, and, and those, by the way, it's it's just double entry bookkeeping. So uh, now I'll also say that the trade deficit doesn't really have a lot to do with trade policy. It has more to do with with savings rates, monetary policy, the value of the dollar, lots of big picture issue. If you look at say the twenty. Uh, countries where the United States has a free trade agreement. So we have the we have the levelest playing field in 20 countries. And you look at the goods and services trade balance, there's a slight surplus. There's a small deficit in goods and a slight surplus, a, big, a slightly bigger surplus in service services uh, export, services trade. And so net-net, we have about balanced trade with our best trading partners. But the overall trade deficit is large and has been for roughly 40 years, large and growing. Because uh, for a lot of reasons, but mostly because Americans don't save enough to support the country's massive investment needs. The faster we grow, the more the economy sucks in in terms of capital, and we pay for that in terms in 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 foreign purchases on the, on the, the the current account. So that's the real story. Uh, and it, trade policy, as I said, doesn't affect it that much. But the president has unfortunately chosen a measure. 
uh, and he talks about it a lot, uh, and it only leads to confusion. Since I'm not nearly as smart as Scott, I, I put it in much simpler terms. Well, after that, I can honestly say I don't think anyone is, but yeah. <laughs> well, I bet, yes, but I, I, from a simple perspective, you know, he delivered a massive dose of st- stimulus to the economy via the tax bill. Right. Uh, the economy is growing. Uh, I think it's slowing down, but last year it grew faster than it had been growing before. And faster than our neighbors, yes. which is the key point for the trade deficit. And the result was uh, increased demand here. We bought more stuff. We bought more imports. They poured in. We have a deficit. Uh, and if you look at the last 15 years of trade data, the cure, if you want to practice it, is very simple. You want to reduce the trade deficit, have a recession. Back in 2000, 2008, the trade deficit dropped by 67%. No jobs were created. <laughs> Back to the deepest recession yeah, not, since this is not the a 30s. Good, this is not a good policy. Not we're good not, policy. Well, the trade guys are not recommending having a recession. But if your only indicator of success is that number, they're really that's the, the only way to get it where you want it to go. Right. So, how, so how should we look at this number? We shouldn't pay a lot of attention well, to look, it, and, I, and, I don't uh, think. There was an interesting pivot in the Sunday shows. Uh, Larry Kudlow, who you mentioned, the president's economic advisor. A.K.A. Gordon Gecko. A.K.A. Gordon Gecko was asked about the growing trade deficit, and he completely finessed the answer and basically says, well, that's not that important. He got it right. He got it right. He got it right as an economist that that this isn't that important and it really isn't about trade, and it was be- it's more important that the economy is growing. And we want we want reciprocal trade, but that's he he, he sent, sort of addressed it separately uh, in his comments. And there was no most important. There was no tweet an hour later saying Larry got it completely wrong. Yeah, and yeah. the deficit is still important. Yeah, so right. radio so, silence from the White House. Mr. Kudlow had it right on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, and and he did not get corrected or backed down in a in a Twitter Twitter uh, uh, timeline. You know where there's a lot of stimulus. My sons continue to purchase Nike cleats at an alarming, alarming rate. And you let them do that? You know, I'm You're not a charge. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sort of a sucker for cleats purchases because I want them to grip the field. Like, I want them, you know, now it's baseball season. Broken and, legs are not good. Right. And right. it's baseball season. And my oldest is, you know, he, he's starting his senior year. My middle has decided to forego baseball and get out of the track. He's, he's running track in order to get faster for football. So, sure. But the purchases of Nike are alarming. Well, look, but now, but let's take that as an example. Look yeah, at the box. Yeah, this is why I wanted to bring it up. Look at the box, all yeah. right, and and uh, it'll say made, made in, in someplace other than the United States. Right. That is part of the goods trade deficit. Right. However, Nike is an American company. Right. And the value added of Nike in the U.S. economy is largely Americans. Americans do the R&D. They do the design work of the product. They're responsible for the branding. Americans work in all the retail stores, including the ones where your son buys the cleats. Yep. And Nike supports some of the great entertainment venues like the National Basketball Association. Uh, And worldwide, uh, there's a lot of services exports that are in the form of royalties paid by foreign broadcasts of the NBA sponsored by Nike. So this, the, 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 I guess the thing is, yes, you can identify individual items that will factor into a goods trade deficit, but the whole economy is benefiting from all this activity, and you don't want to look at just a little piece of it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense that my 12-year-old's feet are still growing, and he's a basketball player, and like he just had to you know, get these enormous shoes, which his feet are starting to get bigger than mine. It, it is- So uh, what size feet, shoes are we talking about here? Like, like I'm a nine and a half, and this kid is like, you know, I believe his next purchase is going to be nine and a half or 10. Well, I was only a size 13 in seventh grade. 
There you go. And I made it all the way to 15 as an adult. There so, you go. There so you go. Good really? luck finding shoes of that size. I've yeah. never been more than a nine and a half my entire life. Me either. I'm a nine and, and a half slash ten. And I'm, I'm, I'm I, I think I'm shrinking now. Well, that's I'll, another matter. Also, I sadly, getting shorter, I've discovered. Is that right? Well, I learned this from my grandfather, who began to get shorter as he aged. And I've discovered when I go in for my annual physical, they do height. Yeah. Uh, and weight, which we won't talk about. Yes, and, no, uh, not on this show we won't. <laughs> but uh, I'm about uh, probably an inch shorter than I was uh, 30 years ago, which is complicated because I've told my children their entire lives that I am taller than they are. Right. Uh, and they've until recently believed me, I think. And now I can't prove it anymore. Just don't let your medical providers measure your nose or ears because they get larger as you age. Really? True. That's a depressing thought. Mm, mm, mm. Well, you heard it first here on The Trade Guys. <laughs> All right. Speaking of getting larger, um, coming to conclusions, President said that he will submit NAFTA's replacement to Congress, the USMCA, very shortly. What does that mean? I hope very shortly is a period of time that includes a chance to agree with the Congress on what's in the bill. Uh, because I think any other path, submitting the, the legislation before complete agreement about what the Congress is prepared to advance, uh, is a, is going to blow up in his face. So there's a danger that he moved too fast. Yeah, it's, it, it's one of my nightmares. I've refined my thinking from the last time we talked about this. I still think it's going to happen. I still think we're going to get there. But I figured out that I think there are four ways that this can get derailed. One way is the Democrats overreach and demand too much, which as I'm sad to say has been known to happen with Democrats from time to time. The second way is that uh, their Ambassador Lighthizer ends up not being able to deliver enough what they want. He will go back and try harder. He may not get what they want. That would be one. The third uh, trap is that the president uh, makes this about him and not about the agreement because that will force the Democrats to oppose it because it's about him. The best thing he can do is not do that. And the fourth thing, which you alluded to, is that he either preemptively withdraws from old NAFTA or he prematurely sends up the bill before all these little differences are worked out. So when he said soon, I hope this was, you know, he was thinking, you know, three or four months and not yeah, soon. Well, what? look, this may not happen in Manhattan real estate, but jamming the Congress really only has bad outcomes for anybody who tries it. Sure. Okay, they, they, they protect their prerogatives jealously, regardless of the substance. Yeah, and they're well-practiced at doing that. Oh, and, and frankly, will get great support from their political base by doing so. What does each side want before they support the agreement? Well, that, it's, That's fra complicated. It's, it's fragmented. Yeah. Uh, the good news is that the USTR team is up there selling it, Lighthizer was, uh, is meeting this afternoon with uh, the new Democrats. And, and let's remember, Republican or Democrat, Ambassador Lighthizer is good on the Hill. He's well-respected. Yes. Uh, there were a number of compliments today. Not everybody agrees with him. But well respected. Yes. He's going to meet with the new Democrats today. The new Democrats, new Democrats in the past have been the core of House Democrats' support for trade. Uh, there didn't used to be very many of them. Uh, the last time we had a trade bill, there were, I think, about there were 28 of them, and they voted for, for TPA at the time. In this Congress, thanks to the election, there's 101 of them. So they are a much more significant force 
in the, amongst the House Democratic Caucus. That was 28 House members in, in 2015. That's amazing. So uh, it's really so it's now Some of these may be ones that you know had an epiphany and joined, even though they've been in the House before. But there's 101 of them now, which makes them not only one of the bigger groups within the Democratic Party, but the group that is most receptive and most open to listening about why this is good. He's meeting with them this afternoon. Uh, equally important, I think, the speaker, uh, Nancy Pelosi, has asked him to come up and initiate a series of briefings on the agreement with the House Democratic Caucus. So he's coming to the first one, which I think is tomorrow or Thursday. Yes. And it sounds like then there will be subsequent ones. They'll probably break it into pieces and do subsequent ones on the various parts. That's important. Uh, it's important that she asked him because it, it indicates some willingness to have a process right. that is that could end up with an actual vote instead of It's all, the also plug. important that he said yes, because yes. that indicates the, that at least from the USDR's point of view, they're not trying to jam the Congress. They're trying to cooperate. They're trying to find a way forward. Well, yes. It certainly flies in the face of the notion that there can no longer be any bipartisanship in Washington. Yes, and it's a good sign. I, I think you know this is another case where the president may be his own worst enemy. I think Lighthizer knows how to get this through. He worked up there. Uh, mm -hmm. He knows what needs to be done. He's paid an extraordinary amount of t attention to the Democrats, beginning with the Speaker. And they've been careful not to say irrevocably no. They have fa found fault, which is what you always do when you're the opposition. They will have demands, which you always have when you're in the opposition. But so far, nobody has drawn you know, a line in the sand that's going to you know, doom the thing. These are all good signs. And the fact that the dialogue is beginning is a good sign. In the short run, what worries me is, is the speaker going to be able to control all the asks from all the various parts of her caucus, including the people uh, who want it to go down uh, and will come up with demands that are that cannot be met because and they don't want them to be met. They want that they want them to be an excuse for the thing to fail. The way to look at a trade agreement is there are three negotiations. At the opening, there's a negotiation about what the objectives of the action with the foreign party are. The second phase is when you actually negotiate, in this case, with Canada and Mexico. We're now in the third phase, and the, the administration is negotiating with the Congress. When that negotiation's complete, the bill's ready to send, and not before. All right, so we'll watch that. And then what happens once the bill is actually submitted? The clock starts to tick. The most important fact is that once it is formally uh, submitted, it cannot be amended. It cannot be changed, and it cannot be filibustered. So, so it's an up or down vote. It's an up or down vote, and it's in the Senate, it's 51. It, it's no, no filibuster, so you don't need 60. In the House, it's a majority. There are no amendments, and the clock has uh, maximum 90 days on it. Now, those are days the Congress is in session, not days of the calendar. So it's 90 days, 90 congressional days for them to actually take the yes. vote up. And it's divided up. It's not just, right. you it's know, the, it, the Ways and Means Committee in the House gets 45, the House floor gets 15. Because it's a revenue bill, it has to initiate in the House under the Constitution. Then the Senate Finance Committee has 15, and then the Senate, uh, full Senate, has 15. That's supposed to add up to 90. It doesn't take that long, ever. Because there's nothing they can do. You right. know, they, the negotiation happened before the bill so was submitted. It, sh it should just there be, can't be an amendments. Right. All the work's happening now. Yes. So right. it, it should, it may not sail through, but the, it won't take the full amount of time. You know, they'll have to have a hearing or two. Uh, the committee will vote on it. Right. But then it goes to the House floor and it'll be an up or down. There'll be three or four hours of debate, maybe five or six hours of debate. And then there will be a vote. 
and so it once it's submitted, if, if unless Trump ruins it by truncating the informal negotiation process and just submitting what he wants now, if he doesn't do that, I think it will be on track to a to a happy ending. Yeah, the last time we actually did this was in 2011, and in that case. I think it was less than a week time elapsed from the time the bill was introduced to bo till both chambers had approved it. Uh, and, and there was actually three agreements done within the space of a, a calendar week. And it was because of all the preliminary work that right. is going on behind the scenes, even while we're sitting here talking. Who's doing the work? Is this staffers? Is it members? Or is it a combination of it's, both? Uh, it's staff and USTR staff. Um, C.J. Mahoney, who is the deputy U.S. trade representative for that part of the world, I guess, uh, is in charge. Frankly, uh, most of the members want to talk to Ambassador Lighthizer. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, what they, that's what they expect. And various people ask him to promise to consult. Uh, and with them on whatever was on their mind. And his answer was consistently, I've been consulting. I'm happy to consult. There's, he said at one point, there's not a day go, that goes by when I don't talk to at least four or five senators or members of Congress. I'm happy to, to come up and see you. And that's right. And that's what he has to do. Uh, mm -hmm. And the two committees, they believe, you know, they own this process and they own the U.S. Trade Representative, that they created the job way back, and he's their guy. They have all the oversight responsibilities, and ultimately they'll be involved in getting to 218 and 51. I mean, the dirty little secret of, of the way this works in the Hill is the way the process is structured. The Ways and Means Committee and the Finance Committee hold all the cards, mm -hmm. and nobody else has very many at all. Because in the informal process that we're talking about, the House doesn't vote. You know, the committees will consider the, and the committees will advise the USTR and the committees will get together. Be, the two of them will get together and decide, hopefully, on a common set of advice. But uh, everybody else is, you know, out to lunch. So this is this is something we are going to have to watch and uh, hopefully they'll they'll get it done. I should say other people can shove their way in if they've got a particular interest, and that often happens. Yeah, but it really gonna, is the committees that, that call the shots. But other people are always going to try to shove their way in with last-minute little things. Oh, that yeah. Look, if the, if the, if the, if the and, vote is close and you get a call from a constituent yeah, and you're a no and you get a call from a constituent and they need your vote, your constituent gets what they're asking for. Right. Yeah, we when I was at the National Foreign Trade Council, it was during that period when it looked like the Trans-Pacific Partnership might be voted on. One of the issues that we got deeply involved in because of our members was a provision on tobacco. And I, there's no need here to go into details, but basically uh, there were probably, depending upon how you counted, there were probably 12 members of Congress who were deeply unhappy with uh, the tobacco provision that was in TPP deeply unhappy. And, you know, if you think about these things passing by three votes, you know, if you have yep. 12 members of Congress that are very unhappy- You might want to listen. You want to, you want to pay right. attention. Right. And, you know, another point of view would say, well, there's 535 of them. Who cares about 12? You know, and the answer is, if it's going to be, you know, 221 to 214, you would need to care, listen to the 12. And that was the, that was the way we advanced that particular ball. Of course, then it ended up not having a vote, so we never had to yeah. be tested. Yeah, the Central America Agreement passed by two votes in the House. And, and that time, Ambassador Portman's work on pockets and liners 
which was a textile issue that never came up entire during the entire negotiations. Nobody ever mentioned it as a problem. At the last minute, it was a problem for members of the Georgia delegation and Ambassador Portman. Because they wanted to line their pockets? Well, it was about <laughs> who made the lining for the pockets. Got it. Okay. Which is not necessarily the same as who makes the suit. Yes. Right. right. I mean, it's really, it's complicated, but but uh, you get that far down in the weeds and Ambassador Portman wanted to get it across the finish line, so we dealt with pockets and liners. And there's been a one major, by two. over the years, there's been a major sock issue, too, which is mostly Alabama, as I recall. Right. One What's guy, the major sock issue? Well, about 90% oh. of socks sold in America are made in America. They're one of the few gar- uh, pieces of apparel that still has largely U.S. sourcing. Yeah, see, this is a perfect opportunity for, you know, the makers of great socks to sponsor the trade guys, right? Like, so like Mack Weldon or, you know, one of these companies that, you know, right? I mean, seriously. It it could happen. Are we accepting sponsors? Do we take sponsors? Sure, we take, especially if they give us good socks. I'm a a sucker for good socks. We'll find a way. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a sucker for good socks. I'll wear their socks. Are you kidding me? I think we should trade up. Let's get some car company to sponsor. I mean, maybe we can get a Mercedes out of this. Yeah, there you go. Mercedes are made in America now, as are Audi, as are Toyota, as are we've learned on this podcast. Hat um, tip to the trade lady who indeed. is with Toyota. Real quick before we go, got to ask you guys, India all of a sudden has become President Trump's latest trade target. Why are we talking about India now? Well, look, what, what created the opportunity to discuss India's trade practices was the renewal of the generalized system of preferences, uh, which is uh, an old a piece of – it's a piece of development economics more than anything else. In 1974, part of the Trade Act of 74, we created this preference program for developing countries and to give them better access to uh, for exports to the U.S. Uh, and there's still about 120 countries or so who participate in the GSP. It's not a big – part of our economy. It's about 1% of imports. Explain what the GSP is. Uh, The Generalized System of Preferences that grants developing countries tariff preferences. Got it. So zero duties. Zero duties okay. on goods that, that, that developed countries would where the normal tariff, the what we call the MFN tariff, is uh, is less than is more than zero. MFN most favored nation. Tariff, right. right. But in order to qualify for these preferences, you have to have improvements in your trade practices. And India has a, had, had a lot of bad practices for a long time. It's been a very, very difficult place to trade with, very difficult place for U.S. companies to do business. And uh, the Trump administration used the opportunity of GSP renewal to uh, essentially raise that issue. And that's why it got into the newspapers. And the Indians have been recalcitrant in, in trying to deal with any of the issues that we, we want them to deal with. And in fact, they're going backwards. This is probably related to their election, which starts next month, uh, and uh, where the, the ruling party is, is trying to be reelected. But uh, they've actually been going backwards uh, on, in terms of market opening uh, to the disadvantage of a number of, of, um, of American companies. Something I'm hoping we'll talk about here uh, at a later point is uh, some things they're doing on data localization and on uh, on e-commerce that disadvantage uh, American companies that want to uh, provide uh, sort of direct direct delivery services there and e-commerce services there as well as financial services there and basically the Indians are are um, essentially trying to block the foreigners from doing that. They're trying to protect uh, their domestic uh, retailers. Now, all in all, GSP is a fairly small hammer to to bring to 
this kind of nail nail driving because contest. it is because it excludes a lot of the stuff right. that uh, the poor countries make very well, like textiles and apparel. Exactly, the total imports covered by GSP about two hundred twenty billion a year. We have two point three trillion in imports, so it's it's about one percent of that's the total GSP. Uh, imports. Uh, so it doesn't really amount to much, although it's enough to get people's attention. So at least it got it got a, it got a rise out of Europe. If you're a small economy with one or two successful companies that have been able to use this to their advantage, it's, it's important it makes to the a big difference. Yeah, it's important it's a, to the companies, and it's probably important to the government because these are going to be companies that are succeeding right. uh, in a poor country, and that's a big deal. So this is a skirmish. This isn't the beginning of a war. it's a little piece war. of leverage. This yeah. isn't the beginning of a war here. Depends on the outcome of the election. I, uh, there, not, not here. Yeah. Normally, what happens in India, like a lot of places, is they follow a much more protectionist policy up through the election. And then once, regardless of who wins, uh, the next government uh, tends to open up. So we'll see what happens. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, trade guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.